0: This is Walter Cronkite tonight presenting episode 329 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Actually, not really, uh, but that's our new music. If you don't like it, uh, well, we do, so uh, uh, that's what we'll be playing from now on, uh, both in the intro and the outro, uh, um, as we as we warned you. Uh, Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're going to express here today do not reflect uh, those of our institutions, clients, family members, pets, uh, uh, or passersby. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Michael Brown, who's the director of the the Defense Innovation Unit at the Department of Defense. He's an enormously influential uh, uh, Participant in the uh, American defense debates, and it'll be an entertaining discussion. Uh, but first, the news roundup, because uh, we got a lot of news. Uh, we're going to have Mark McCarthy, who's adjunct faculty at uh, Georgetown University, Pete Jadell, who's an associate here at Steptoe doing international regulation and compliance work, John Yu, uh, professor of law at UC Berkeley, uh, and Megan Stiffel, uh, who's, uh, who's got so many associations, Megan. I cannot list them all, but I'll try. Silicon Valley, Silicon Harbor Consultants, Global Cyber Alliance, and the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Uh, I think I left one out too, didn't I? Uh,
1: well, Jamil would be unhappy if we didn't mention the National Security Institute. Stuart, this is my effort to challenge your introduction with the longest running, etc. cetera. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna have a, a standing policy that I'm only gonna introduce guests who are not associated with uh, uh, Jamil Jaffers National Security Institute, and I'll tell you if they aren't. Otherwise, you can just assume they are. Uh, all right, uh, let's jump in. There's a lot to talk about, and the biggest story of the week, maybe of the month, maybe of the year, is TikTok and WeChat. Uh, Mark, can you give us the background in? four minutes?
2: Yeah, let let me first do WeChat. Uh, in, In August, an executive order prohibited all transactions involving WeChat, and it was effective September 20th. Then on September 18th, last Friday, the Commerce Department defined the prohibited transactions as those involving making the WeChat app available in the app stores and the provision of various internet services to WeChat including hosting and content delivery services. It clarified that personal communications were not themselves banned, even if the app itself would be effectively disabled. A group of WeChat users had sued on First Amendment grounds, and on Saturday, a magistrate judge in California issued a temporary injunction preventing this ban from going into effect today. The judge said the plaintiffs had raised serious questions going to their First Amendment claim that the order would effectively eliminate the plaintiff's key platform for communication and was the equivalent of censorship. Obviously, that's not the end of this story. On TikTok, also in in August, a separate executive order prohibited all transactions involving TikTok's owner, ByteDance, also effective on September 20th. An additional order prohibited any ownership by ByteDance of any interest in TikTok, but it gave ByteDance until November 12th to find a buyer. Then also in August, China implemented new restrictions that would prohibit ByteDance from selling its algorithm without getting approval from China. This condition apparently doomed Microsoft's bid for an outright purchase of TikTok, and a week ago, Oracle emerged as the winner. It arranged a trusted partnership with ByteDance, under which TikTok would be spun off as a separate U.S. company housed in the U.S. It would be owned 80% by ByteDance, 20% by Oracle and Walmart. But if you counted ByteDance as U.S. owners, this gave U.S. shareholders 53% of the new TikTok company. Oracle would handle the data stored outside of China, but the algorithm would remain in TikTok's hands although there was some talk of Oracle having the ability to inspect it. Now, on Friday, September 18th, the Commerce Department issued an order saying that the new downloads of TikTok would be banned as of September 20th, and prohibitions on other transactions involving TikTok would go into effect on November 12th. Now, the details of of this Oracle deal are still murky. But on Saturday, the president professed himself satisfied with the deal in concept. On Sunday, yesterday, the Commerce Department extended its order banning downloads of the TikTok app until September 27th, next Sunday. And the final CFIUS CFIUS review continues this week with some changes in details still possible. On Saturday, after the president's apparent approval, TikTok triumphantly announced that it was here to stay and China's press seems delighted with the outcome. Republican senators continue to be dissatisfied, and indeed this article deal seems far less than what the administration apparently had hoped for. Even the economist thinks that the U.S. was badly outplayed by China. This saga, too, is far from over.
0: Yeah. Is there anybody on this call who doesn't think this is this was not the U.S. This was the the president of the United States who was outplayed by China. Uh, This is this is turning into sort of a uh, third world dumpster fire, as far as I can see, in terms of U.S. policymaking. Okay, <laughs> that's a consensus. Let's go back to we, uh, WeChat. Uh, and, and, and you guys can jump in and tell me I'm wrong about uh, TikTok. But I, I think that WeChat has the more interesting legal issues uh, uh, since we have no idea what the president is thinking or doing on uh, TikTok. Uh, um, uh, but WeChat, the the decision from the magistrate judge uh, was that basically there was a serious First Amendment problem with saying that WeChat can't provide services uh, in the United States, largely on the grounds that there are a lot of Chinese-speaking, Chinese-reading, Chinese-writing uh, 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 Americans who depend on WeChat for most of their communication. And uh, the court said, well, I don't know whether it's strict scrutiny or uh, uh, intermediate uh, scrutiny, but either way, it's not likely to survive, so I'm going to uh, to do a, um, a preliminary injunction. Sean um, uh, Yu, you've got uh, – some experience here in terms of first amendment and national security um, connections. Um, The judge didn't seem to give a lot of deference to this on, on national security grounds. Uh, Do you think she got it right?
3: Stuart, thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a, they say long time listener, first time caller. So it's great to be on for the first time. (laughs) Um, I I think this opinion, whether regardless of what you think about the ultimate First Amendment issue, I think the opinion, which was done by a magistrate judge, was pretty poorly done. If you look closely at the opinion, it actually holds that the ban of WeChat is equivalent to a prior restraint, uh, a censorship of speech, uh, which I think is just utterly mistaken. <laughs> it's just there's no uh, precedent for finding uh, something. For example, if you were to Block any uh, a certain communication channel for emanating from outside the United States to inside the United States to find that it's a content-based censorship or a prior restraint. As you, as everyone probably knows, this a prior restraint is probably the worst thing the government can do with regard to speech and has always been disfavored. And then in the alternative, you know, as a secondary argument, the court just sort of says, "Well, maybe it's not really content-based, or at least the government doesn't think it is." But then uh, he, the judge makes a number. I think of uh, I think dubious claims. At one point, the judge says, "Well, maybe this is like a public forum for Chinese and Chinese Americans," uh, which is uh, that would be interesting because if WeChat's a public forum. Then it also means that Facebook is a public forum, Google is a public <laughs> and that they are <clears throat> in, in some way owned by the state and uh, have a First Amendment obligation to provide right, anyone a space to come in. And then lastly, I would say, uh, and this is, I think, where uh, would be the easiest way for appeals courts to uh, overturn, for first district judge and then appeals courts to question this decision, is a judge gives almost no weight to the government's interests in national security Uh, The court says that insufficient evidence was produced to show a national security interest here with WeChat. Uh, Of course, this has occurred in uh, many cases before, after uh, 9-11 and since about how much the government has to show uh, to support its national security claim and then how much it should show in camera, in secret, in classified and for showings rather than in public. And that all still has to come. So I, I would expect this decision will be... Uh, replaced or overturned?
0: Yeah, I I think I, uh, one can certainly hope that I, this is a harder issue than I would like it to be, but uh, um, it would be astonishing for the law to say um, the Chinese government, which controls WeChat at the end of the day and and what WeChat readers can say and see and what they know about the news, uh, uh, that um, uh, the the U.S. government cannot say, we do not want Americans to be propagandized in that way. Um, And indeed, once they allow it in, the Chinese government can propagandize to its heart's content because we've already had decisions that say that the owner of, of the platform um, is perfectly uh, free to say uh, June of 1989 in Tiananmen Square. Oh, it was uh Sunny and fair, Uh, you know, here's some pictures uh, of, um, you know, the uh, people uh, standing around uh, in the sunshine, Um, because it's their right to deny that anything bad happened uh, in June of 89 in Tiananmen Square. Um, And so we'd be in a situation where the Chinese government gets to propagandize Americans uh, who speak Chinese, and the U.S. government is... Not only forbidden to propagandize, but forbidden to prevent the propagandization by uh, uh, foreign uh, nations who are don't have our interests at heart. It's
3: there's another odd. interesting way that this, um, you know, the Chinese government's actions actually interact with this, which is the government's case would be really strong if it said, "Look, there's many ways for people here in the United States to communicate with people in China." There's an interesting IEPA question about whether that's protected here, but even so the reason why there aren't viable alternative methods is because the Chinese government has shut them down, right? You could, if it was an American right. America, you say, well, use Facebook Messenger, use Apple to chat, you know, you could use any number of messaging systems, but the Chinese government shut those all down. And so the Chinese government itself has made WeChat the only viable uh, messaging platform between Chinese Americans and Chinese here and people back in China.
2: So, so let, let me, let me make two quick points on this. One is that uh, the judge is really not challenging the national security interest here. Rather, she seems to be focused on the what she thinks is the lack of fit between means and ends. Uh, and she suggests there might be alternative ways of accomplishing the same goal. That obviously is a matter of speculation. We'll see how that develops later on. And the other thing is she has an interesting rhetorical flourish at the end on the uh, the, the public forum question where she quotes... The administration's own Section 230 executive order claiming that uh, that social media companies provide a public forum. Obviously, that doesn't give it any legal weight, but it does sort of throw a challenge back to the administration and their characterization of, of social media companies as public forum.
0: All right. Uh, well, let's, let's go Briefly back to TikTok, uh, this is a complete mess uh, uh, to to my view. Uh, There was a basis for doing this. I mean, the WeChat uh, thing is actually a a more serious national security concern. But uh, I think whenever a government that hates the United States as much as the uh, Chinese government does, says the algorithm we're using to choose uh, content for your kids is a matter of our national security, you kind of think, well, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, and instead, uh, as far as I can see, um, that algorithm will keep working for as long as TikTok wants it to work, and uh, Oracle will have nothing more or less to say about that. Yeah, the, the only
2: thing that, that is still out there to be resolved is this, is this possibility that Oracle would have the right to inspect the the algorithm and perhaps even uh, supervise the mechanism of its of its operation. That isn't clear. Uh, but what is clear is that the actual ownership of the algorithm stays with the TikTok company and it doesn't transfer to a U.S. company.
0: Plus, artificial intelligence algorithms are famously uh, resistant to trying to figure out why they're doing what they're doing or, or exactly what they're doing. Um, so it, inspecting it is even less productive than inspecting the source code, uh, which is um, a uh, a fig leaf for security because nobody can find all of the ways in which the source code could be used to uh, interfere with or siphon off data. So, uh, And and why should Oracle care? Um, Unless somebody says, uh, without this, we're going to take away your 20%, they're not going to do much because they don't have a business interest in doing much. A more general
2: um, solution to that problem of, of algorithms that might be engaged in some kind of mischief is, is, a, is a general requirement that, uh, that you know, studies be conducted of the, the effective operation of these algorithms. If there really is disinformation or censorship going on in the TikTok platform, that should be the kind of thing that is open for discussion and open for analysis by independent auditors. In the same way that it should be open for the, that kind of conversation for Facebook or YouTube.
0: Well, I'm all for that. Uh, I, I think that's a good idea. I don't think it's sufficient in the case of a uh, Chinese-controlled uh, social media, but uh, it's it would be a good start for for everybody. Uh, and it's only going to cost us, Megan, Uh billion to start uh, uh, decoupling from uh, uh, China's uh, ambitions in the technosphere. Uh, uh, That's what the semiconductor industry says uh, it's going to cost the U.S. to have a plausible um, chip uh, uh, industry in the United States.
1: Yes. Um, So at the risk of using some of these Phrases we use too often. I do feel like this is a bit of kind of old wine in new bags here, but um, perhaps as as we know with wine, they change the label, and maybe this time it, it succeeds um, to get off the ground. So, yeah, as, as, as Stuart mentioned, the Semiconductor Industry Association released a report last week with this large paycheck, uh, large amount um, required. They say in order to keep essentially the semiconductor industry afloat, um, the report gives a number of of, of eye-opening uh, figures, including that um, uh, 6% of new global capacity will be in the US. And in contrast, I think this is where we're mostly concerned. 40% of, of new capacity will be developed in China, whereas we all know, I think, um, the uh, engagement of the of the gov- government in the market is, is much higher. And now the Semiconductor Industry Association is suggesting that perhaps our federal government needs to cough up 50 billion to contribute to this. Um, and the reason they're doing so is because it costs about thirteen. Uh, excuse me, the cost that it, it that it uh, is required in order to develop a, a a plant in the United States is significant, and in the past uh, and in most cases, the states give a large amount of incentives to to draw these plants there. And as we all know, many states are suffering in in the, in the COVID economy, so they're I think among other things looking for federal assistance here. Um, I do worry though that that uh, as much as this is a concern. It, I, I'm curious to what others think around, around the around the call on, on whether this will actually prevail in this instance. Um what incentives are is it that the government can can offer? Of course, Senator Cornyn has is sponsoring the Chips for America Act to increase government support for the industry. He is, is supportive. Um and we know, for example, that it, it costs about 30% more to locate a, a company in the US uh, versus other countries, and it's 50% cheaper in China. So um, the time is certainly ripe in terms of the need, but the ability to actually fund and support the incentives requested, I think, is is probably not so. Stuart, well, I, go ahead. I bet you, I can imagine that you might have some views on what types of incentives we might or might not want to use on to do so. So I, uh,
0: I I've I've got mixed views on this. It's a very high price tag, although fifty billion dollars would only buy you about. For modern plants, uh, so what they're what they're saying is that the fifty billion is is necessary to even out the difference between the cost elsewhere and, and in the U S uh, uh, the U S has tried this in the past. Uh, there are some trusted foundries operating in the U S um, and the problem is you build them and they're state of the art for two or three years and then they're not. And uh, uh, if you have to keep paying people to build new plants uh, uh, it gets very expensive. And, and, in terms of jobs, it's probably a hundred million dollars per job, or, or close to it. When you build a um, a, a fab, uh, they do not produce a lot of jobs. They're good jobs, but not a lot of them. Um, so, from a uh, industrial policy point of view, this is a very hefty price tag. Isn't there
3: also? I, I this may be going back way too far in technology years, but isn't there the account of Intel in the nineteen eighties and Intel was dominant in memory chips, and then Japanese and later Korean, Taiwanese companies essentially drove it out. There was a push to try to keep memory chip production in the United States, but instead this led Intel to focus on microprocessors, which is what uh, was its comparative advantage, and that turned out well for uh, everybody. The United States and our, uh, the Asian countries that made the memory chips and led to better pro- prices and more innovation here. Yeah, I, I would yeah, thought that'd the, be a cautionary still,
0: tale. <laughs> yeah, the U.S. still does have, as I remember, at least one pretty large memory chip manufacturer. So it, it didn't it, – it was not the disaster it was portrayed as uh, at the time. Um, on the other hand, uh, look, uh, uh, governments can – distort markets if they have enough money and the Chinese government has enough money and it intends to distort this market. So the question is, are we going to let it distort the market in a way that could, uh, uh, change the U S it supply chain in a pretty dramatic and very unfavorable way. So that that it's, it's a, it's going to be a hard issue, I think. So while we're, while we're on the subject of kind of, uh, uh, companies getting cozy with government to achieve their competitive ends, Uh, 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 Pete, uh, um, IBM has said uh, they'd like to see new export controls on facial recognition systems, which at at least until very recently, IBM actually made, sold, and exported, uh, which doesn't sound quite right. What's the story there?
4: (laughs) Thanks, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I think you. I think you hit it there when you said until until recently they were um, in the market themselves. So um, you know that might be part of what's going on here. I was really surprised to see this from IBM. Um, so it was it was a public submission that they made to the Commerce Department about ten days ago, where they support the idea, rare from industry, um, of imposing export controls on certain types of facial recognition technologies. Um, just for really quick background, this, was a re- uh, this w- it was, wasn't this was out of the blue. It came in response to a public in- inquiry from Commerce that they put out in July seeking comments from industry and academia and other stakeholders about how the U.S. government should be thinking about export controls on surveillance and related technologies, facial recognition, other biometrics, some of the hardware underlying it. Mm-hmm. Um, So commerce was looking to hear about um, export controls on kind of law enforcement tools like fingerprint and voice print technologies, but also, um, you know, kind of longstanding controls that they were considering removing or reducing, but also possibly imposing new controls on AI software algorithms, um, some of the relevant hardware components for some of these biometric identification applications, um, and the focus here is, you know, not surprisingly, again, it's China. Um, in particular, um, some of the surveillance practices in Western China, um, racial profiling, discrimination, human rights abuses, um, and the like. Um, so, you know, this is—it's very rare to see a, you know, a company. In the space, calling for export controls. You know, I'm a export controls practitioner. Obviously, a huge fan, but uh, you know, it's a very cumbersome way to regulate this type of um, technology development, commercial activity. Um, you know, export controls apply not just to the kind of countries and end uses, but also they have application with respect to. Uh, nationalities, which raises all kinds of concerns about competitiveness of U.S. industry, um, you know, over breadth of the regulation. So, um, you know, unfortunately, the formal comment period for this public inquiry that IBM responded to closed last week, but um, BIS, which is the responsible agency at Commerce, um, will probably still be open to engagement on this. You know, I, I think this is a slow mover at BIS. BIS is very hesitant to... Uh, regulate in this these areas of technology even though Congress you know they had a, a an export control reauthorization statute a couple of years ago um, some of our allies in Europe even have been pushing BIS to be more active in this space um, you know I think BIS they understand how difficult this will be um, to effectively administer export controls in this area so this is this is a slow mover, and I think there's still time, and and I think the agency would appreciate a lot of a lot more engagement um, from industry, from academia, from from anyone who's got a stake in this.
0: Yeah, you know, I we, we spent the entire Cold War with the Europeans telling us. Oh, that's very interesting that you're putting those export controls on. Those are unilateral, though. We we feel 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 free to sell our stuff to the people that you're not uh, selling it to. I I think it's kind of nice to have the shoe on the other foot. Uh, we should tell them, yeah, go ahead, unilateral. Uh, take the moral high ground. Uh, uh, sacrifice your your companies uh, to political correctness, and uh, we'll be right behind you soon. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Megan, I, the House passed an Internet of, of Things security standards bill that got a, a little more attention than it probably deserved. Uh, it does set standards, but they're they're only for the federal government, as I read it.
1: Yes. Uh, so last week, um, Congresswoman Kelly and, and Representative Heard uh, saw their. Bill received unanimous support, actually, bipartisan support. Uh, The bill is called the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act, and it actually, I think, had 12 or more co-sponsors as well. Um, It would require NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to create standards and guidelines for how government agencies use and manage IoT purchased by the government. Um, This would apply to computers, mobile devices, basically anything that can be connected to the Internet, Um, It will also require OMB to review existing federal government information security policies and develop guidance so that the agencies can meet NIST's recommendations. NIST and OMB will have to update IoT security standards, guidelines, and policies at least every five years. And also, you know, the, the IoT manufacturers will have to develop basic patching and remediation capabilities for their devices so that the vulnerabilities can be fixed. There is a notification requirement for agent um two agencies should a device that's been procured uh, become subject to a vulnerability and dhs needs to publish guidance on what's called often cbd or coordinated vulnerability disclosure for contractors and vendors so I'm a little more hopeful, Stuart, uh, than, than perhaps you are, that, that um, the companion bill, I guess, is over in the Senate, and there is some hope that it might be fast-tracked, some others perhaps.
0: I think it came out, it, it's come out of a committee, so yeah, it could easily be fast-tracked. Uh, uh, I just wonder whether, um, you're an Internet of Things manufacturer, uh, you've got to have a really cheap product, you've bought the cheapest possible firmware and software, um, and then the federal government says, oh, well, we're not going to buy it if it if it can't be uh, uh, updated. And you say, well, how much of my sales go to the federal government today? It can't be much. I'm 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 going to let somebody else take that business, uh, and so the federal government will just be out of luck on on IoT for a uh, a bunch of products.
1: Eh, maybe I mean I sort of see this as similar, obviously not identical to what happened with light bulbs and and actually computers in the first instance back in back in the when was that the nineties eighties when we began with um the the government said you need to buy computers that uh, are going to turn off so they don't keep sucking down energy then we had energy star light bulbs that that you know you you might apply the same argument there that perhaps someone else can just manufacture the light bulb but it actually has turned out to really take off um now that's not to say that it's cheap in that case the energy star program is itself like a 40 million dollar a year program or something but um the quasi consumer advocate in me thinks that this might be actually a halfway decent way of trying to raise raise the ships that are out there sinking. Um, but well, Ener-
0: and Energy Star was a labeling program that was aimed at consumers, not just at, at federal purchases, uh, and, and and that would be uh, very sensible.
1: Yeah, it began with the government, though, um, and so they per- then it was extended to the private sector. So I, I sort of see a similar potential pathway. But here. that could happen.
0: You're right. The Cyberspace Solarium Commission has recommended that uh, all IoT devices must be patchable or the person who put them together and sold them is liable uh, for any harm they cause. So uh, uh, that idea is indeed right behind this bill. And so this, uh, you know, any bill that is that passes unanimously, you wonder how much it does. Uh, but maybe this at least breaks a little bit of uh, ground for what could be a more elaborate uh, effort to regulate security on IOT. Okay. I, I, John, I want to talk a little bit about content moderation in the first amendment uh, uh, and picked three stories from uh, last week. Uh, all of them conservatives complaining that uh, um, uh, Facebook and Twitter Uh, treated them badly, um, and that it was a a case of uh, double standards. Uh, um, In Facebook, uh, it was a political ad. Uh, The political ad was attacking Gary Peters and Joe Biden, and it said these guys want to take away female athletes' fair shot at competition um, eh, because they're going to let competition. Competitors who claim to be girls but were born a boy uh, play in and destroy girls' sports. That's they call it equality. That's not fair. Um, Facebook. Um, Made up a new category uh, for that, saying it was uh, missing context uh, uh, after their Facebook, uh, after their fact checker said, I can't fact check that. Uh, might be true, might not be. It requires a prediction. Uh, uh, Facebook said, well, it lacks context. And then they took it down completely. Um, uh, second, Twitter put a warning label on a Trump Tweet who said uh, uh, voting by mail uh, because of the un the new and unprecedented massive amount of unsolicited ballots will, which will be sent to quote unquote voters or wherever this year the, the November third election may never be accurately determined which is what some want uh, um, a, and uh, Twitter put a warning label on that saying it contained potentially misleading information uh, and then um, uh, the Trump campaign. Ran, uh, complained that uh, Joe Biden had run an ad which spliced Trump's words uh, uh, so that it sounded like he was saying the coronavirus and this is their new hoax. Uh, when, as they say, he was talking about media, um, uh, uh, the media, not the coronavirus, and that uh, uh, the, the Twitter had treated as manipulated uh, um, a clip in which the Trump campaign had clipped uh, Biden's words in similar fashion. So those are those are three arguments that um, social media is looking for ways to tilt the election against Trump. Um, I think the first response from from most people uh, in this field is, "Well, you can't do anything about it. Uh, they uh, they have a First Amendment right to decide what they're going to uh, 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 show and what they're going to comment on. And when somebody says this is missing context, uh, they're editorializing about the uh, about the ad, and that's their First Amendment right." I uh, uh, do you think that? Uh, um, we're just stuck with whoever happens to own these social media uh, platforms and the biases they want to bring to the uh, to the table.
3: I, I'm afraid so. <clears throat> I think they're privately owned networks, and under current First Amendment doctrine, it's only the government that's obligated uh, not you know to, to respect the right to free speech. They're private entities; they have their own opinion. They're allowed to put up or take down things as they please. I think where they might run into trouble actually could ironically be state laws or laws that require fair dealing and consumer transactions, things like this. Because uh, while we might think looking at their conduct that they have an opinion and a point of view and they're allowed to promote it, uh, these organizations, you know, Facebook, Twitter, they don't say they're doing that. They're not. They're not like the New York Times where they have in their their opinion page and they. Uh, have their own point. Uh, outwardly, say they have their own point. Instead, uh, you know, these are organizations that are claiming that they're doing this fairly. You know, Facebook has a Supreme Court, right? That's supposed to enforce something like First Amendment principles. Uh, when there are challenges to what it keeps uh, puts off the network, Twitter might end up doing uh, the same thing. I think they're but Twitter's not saying, you know, we we have point of view, and we are trying to advance it. So one one way to I think whether they're being biased or not is I think one of the maybe most memorable ads I can remember uh, of a newspaper in, the, in the recent years was the famous ad when uh, General Petraeus came to testify in the uh, Senate oh, about the search. Yeah. And the New York Times ran a full page ad said General Petraeus. And I always wonder, would Facebook or Twitter Ban that ad if someone wanted to run it today, or would they put a you know a little label on there saying uh, you know lacks context, or would they just let the whole thing run? And if and I I bet they would let the whole thing run without the warnings, without blocking, and that does show I think political bias. Now maybe in the end, the best policy for these networks is just to say, yeah, we have a political bias. We you know it, we know it. We're allowed to have it. rather than purporting uh, to be these free public fora, which I think it's become pretty clear they're not.
2: Yeah, Stuart, so you know, there's a good direction to go in in this, in this area, which might pass First Amendment scrutiny. And that is to pick on uh, up on what, what John was saying about consumer protection. You know, th- there is a case to be made that if these companies announce their standards and then don't live up to them, that's a kind of consumer deception. And and they should be held to account in some fashion. So some standard-like consistency with your own announced publicly available standards might be something that could be enforced. The hardest part is to figure out how to do the enforcement, because, of course, any government agency that would try to enforce that would have to look at the standards and the particular case and say, did it did it really meet the standards, yes or no? They'd have to second-guess the judgments of the, uh, of, of the social media company. But, but I think there may be some life in having some outside auditor make those kind of calls rather than having a government agency doing it. But I do think this notion of consistency with their own publicly announced standards has some life in it.
0: Well, fair enough. I, I, I want somebody with subpoena power and the ability to uh, uh, discover all the emails that go back and forth uh, uh, to be making that judgment. I don't think that they, you make it just on the face of what they present as their justification because the, uh, it's the emails that tell you what they're really doing. Uh, I also wonder whether, as far as political ads go, um, that's actually a surprisingly heavily regulated uh, private sector uh, um, enterprise. Uh, uh, there are uh, special pricing rules uh, and the like uh, for, uh, uh, for political ads. I wonder if you couldn't pass a law that said if, if there's a political ad for a candidate, major candidate, if you wanted to say, and the candidate puts at the bottom, I approved this ad, it ought to just run and let people just, you know, make their judgments about that uh, uh, that candidate based on the ads they're willing to uh, endorse.
2: You know, Stuart, that, that's the rule for broadcasting, and it's been the rule since yeah. 1927, so I don't see why it's such a bad idea for social media either. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, uh, Last uh, couple of stories, Uh, Megan, uh, everybody and his brother got indicted for hacking last week uh, by the Justice Department. Iranians, uh, 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 Chinese nationals. uh, uh, And then we found out that uh, uh, the the North Koreans are in bed with Russian organized crime. Can you give us a quick breakdown on uh, what we learned uh, uh, about hackers in the last week?
1: They've been quite active. So, in many cases, I would particularly in the case of the so the last one, which is I think not where we want to begin. DPRK potentially working with um, elements of the Russian cybercrime syndicates. Um, we know that that these hacking groups are um, opportunistic. So, uh, in thinking about the. What we believe is that the, the DPRK was was essentially distributing its malware through um, or its tools through Russian cyber syndicate groups access points. So that itself is troubling. Um, I don't think it's the first time we've seen a kind of closer collaboration between uh, these two types of groups and and in many cases, um, either government directed or government proxied individuals. So that's troubling. Um in the case of the, so that you mentioned also the several Iranian indictments, there was a case out of the Eastern District of Virginia, uh, and an indictment unsealed charging um, uh, computer intrusions, unauthorized access, so several 1030 charges, aggravated identity theft, um, and a forfeiture um, requirement. Um, in this case, they were reportedly um, working to gather aerospace and satellite technology international government from international governmental organizations in the U.S., a number of countries, many of whom we would all probably expect. They did so through, lo and behold, shock, spear phishing emails. So um, in many cases, I would say it's it's sadly more of the same. But of course, as you noted at the outset, uh, the, the fact that the government um, announced all of these in the same week is, is actually perhaps not surprising because, as some folks know, these types of charges are not centrally coordinated within the department of justice. So there's a lot of activity going along, uh, all over the country. Um, in the case of the Chinese, um, indictments, uh, the case there was, um, outside of DC and, um, we had nine counts of, um, I'll just pause by saying a large amount of, of effort on behalf of the, um, Chinese government. Um, and particularly alarming in this particular case were, issues of supply chain attacks and 23 counts of racketeering, conspiracy, identity theft, aggravated identity theft. So um, quite prolific.
0: I'll say, Uh, yeah, I do love the idea of the uh, DPRK going to Russian organized crime uh, um, uh, uh, to get access to uh, 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 accounts they're going to hack. It's, it's, It is kind of hard to know who's more loathsome in that circumstance, Uh, uh, but uh, um, uh, I I think at least in terms of uh, how dangerous it is to deal with them, uh, the Russian organized crime guys may be a little surprised when they try to put the arm on the North Koreans. Uh, um, All right thank you to uh, uh, our entire uh, panel. Uh, I'm going to turn now to our interview with Michael Brown. He's the Director of the Defense Innovation Unit at the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, he's been the CEO of Semantic. He's been a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow, uh, and he's um, been running DIU uh, for the last several years. So I'm going to talk to him first about DIU and about some of the issues we've already covered. So, Michael, why don't we start with how you got as interested in defense and technology as you clearly are? You're, you're one of the most influential people in the, at the intersection of defense and technology, and you've done a lot of different things. How did you get interested in the topic?
5: Well, I met my predecessor leading DIU, uh, Raj Shaw. And he said, I'd like to get some help with a project that came up from uh, then-Secretary Ash Carter, looking at Chinese investment, early stage technology. And uh, I was coming up on a transition in my career. And I said, sure, I'll help with that. It sounds sounds like an interesting uh, topic to learn about. That's where we met uh, Stuart and had a chance to write a paper. I didn't know at the time that it would be read but uh, it was read, and uh, thanks to some of the great input we got in writing that paper, uh, became a catalyst for some legislation, the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act to give CFIUS a little more uh, heft when it looks at uh, investments at the time, as you know, it was really looking at acquisitions. So uh, CFIUS now has the power to look at a lot more of the types of transactions that could result in technology transfer than it did previously. And in doing uh, that work, uh, then decided to propose something that would be a a counter or something where the U.S. could go on offense, and that idea was also adopted in uh, the NDAA, National Defense Authorization Act, two years ago. The idea is national security innovation capital, because we find ourselves in a world where venture capital has primarily moved to software. Uh, having led a software company that uh, is a lot easier to make money than in hardware, but the military still needs lots of hardware, batteries, quantum sensors, components for space. So the idea is let's bring the government demand signal and some government money to stimulate private investment in dual-use hardware, an area where some of our adversaries like China have invested heavily, but the U.S. has increasingly moved away from. And in Uh, proposing that idea and having that adopted uh, in the NDAA. Then the question was, okay, where does that live within the Defense Department? Naturally, in the research and engineering organization, that's where I met my previous boss, Mike Griffin. And uh, then he asked me to lead DIU. And let's combine that idea of national security innovation capital with DIU.
0: So the most humbling experience I've had in government, and it came early, was when I wrote a report for the secretary at the time of education about how a particular function of government ought to run. And I had all elaborate rules and uh, uh, structures and procedures. Uh, And when I was done, I handed it in and the secretary said, why don't you run that? Um, And I I think I was, yeah. I was six months into that process when I had thrown out at least two-thirds of the stuff that I had recommended because it turned out not to work. So I'm going to ask you, uh, uh, what have you had to jettison that you thought was going to be great?
5: Well, in this case, uh, the ideas surrounding National Security Innovation Capital, we're still waiting to put into practice two years later because while the authorizers thought it was a great idea – The appropriators didn't put money behind it. Of course, a lot of competing priorities for defense. Uh, But I'm excited that in the House version of the appropriations bill for defense, uh, the initial appropriation is there for n So we're hoping to get started on that uh, when the appropriations bill is done, if the Senate and the conference committee agree. So I'll be a better position to answer that later. I'd say the Defense Innovation Unit uh, was already uh, up and running, obviously in good shape. But we just celebrated our fifth uh, birthday. Uh, so this was two years ago when I came in to lead uh, DIU. And uh, thanks to my predecessor, Raj Shaw, already up and running and establishing some success. And we just tried to build on that by scaling what we've done at DIU. So as an example, we're doing three times the number of projects we did two years ago.
0: No, that's great. Now, uh, one of the one of the questions I think uh, even people who understand something about uh, uh, defense innovation would have is how is DIU different from say DARPA, which has been around forever, or InQtel, which has certainly been around for a while? Um, uh, uh, where did where does your money go compared to where DARPA's money and InQtel's money goes?
5: Right. Well, DARPA, as you point out, has a very long history of long-term research for defense needs, which turns out to have great spillover effects for the economy in general. Everybody knows that uh, the Internet concepts were first pioneered by DARPA. Uh, GPS, another example, and think how prevalent those are today as underpinnings for uh, a lot of what uh, has made Silicon Valley and other innovation hubs successful. Foundational technologies for a lot of commercial success, miniaturized electronics being another example. So DARPA is very long term in their thinking, which is great. And we need that kind of investment in uh, in R&D that's very long term, not looking for a a financial return in the next couple of years. DIU is on the other end of the scale. How can we look at what exists commercially and bring that in immediately uh, to serve uh, the military? So this is what Ash Carter observed when he set up DIU five years ago. In a lot of the game-changing technologies of the future, AI, autonomous systems, uh, what's happening in commercial space, the innovation from the quantity of investment and the rapid cycles of investment, that's all happening in our commercial sector. So that's uh, funded by the the startup companies and other uh, private investors That are making a very vibrant economy out of those new new technologies and our uh, role at DIU is finding those who are the best companies that uh, we can source from and making sure we can adopt uh, that technology and get that out to the warfighter as quickly as possible so our mission is really about finding what exists commercially rather than inventing it which is what DARPA does invent technology and so, when we find that, then we're focused on how do we reduce the barriers for those commercial, often small companies, to work with DOD and rapidly get their technology scaled. So, that's a set of things that we're focused on. And relative, InQtel, InQtel, of course, has a, uh, also a nice history, now 20 years old, of investing in companies for the intelligence community. Uh, often they're involved a little bit earlier stage in terms of what technology do we see out there, which companies can we boost. Uh, and again, DIU, again, focused on defense versus intelligence, but then a little bit later in terms of development, we're looking for commercial technologies available immediately to scale with Department of Defense.
0: There's a lot of talk in your, your reports about prototypes. Is, is, is that sort of your assumed end product? We're going to have a prototype. It's actually going to work. It's going to use commercial technology and it's going to do something that the defense industry, the defense department needs.
5: Yeah. Prototypes is uh, really our language at uh, DIU for how do we test that in a military application? I think it's a bit of a misnomer for those of us who uh, are familiar with the commercial world, because we're looking for technology that really is already established, proven in the commercial world. Uh, If a company has a technology that is pretty close to that, meaning, okay, maybe it's not in uh, full volume production, but is already uh, uh, proven and, and produced in some quantity. We can work with companies at that stage of development, but we wouldn't work with a company that is just getting a beta level prototype as an example. So the commercial world prototype means earlier in the development. In our language, it really is we've got something that already works commercially, and we're going to prototype it in a military application because we need to make sure that it works Sometimes the consequences in the military are literally life and death versus, okay, I might have a software package that that didn't work in the intended application.
0: So I I usually I talk to a lot of uh, early stage companies and I'm on advisory boards for a bunch of them. And I, I usually say, you know, running a startup with the expectation you're going to be able to do it with government money is a recipe for – so much pain. Uh, there's there. There's no more painful way to get started than than to try to try to get the government to buy your new technology. Uh, uh, do you? Th- it doesn't sound like you're trying to solve that problem. You're trying to solve the problem of whether people should adep- should spend the time to adapt their technology for the military. That's exactly right. So
5: our ideal uh, supplier is someone who's already working with commercial companies, and we want to make DOD, as much as possible, look like just another vertical, another uh, uh, large uh, customer in a different uh, industry segment that they can go after. So if we can reduce the barriers and move quickly enough, which is what we aim to do, then we can be an extension, a growth strategy for innovative companies. We're not, uh, as you point out, uh, helping them finance their business.
0: So... You know, we, we read a lot about uh, resistance to working with the Defense Department uh, in the Silicon Valley. Uh, the Google workforce has been complaining and successfully about uh, uh, Pentagon contracts. Uh, the uh, Microsoft workforce complained less successfully. Uh, um, it, how much of that do you actually see when you go out to talk to people do you do you get executives who say well this is interesting but I'd, I'm not sure that the revenue is worth the the grief I'd get from my engineers you know uh,
5: the good news is we haven't really experienced that we're seeing more and more uh, small companies that want to work with Department of Defense now if you're at the stage of a Google or uh, a Facebook or Microsoft you have real choices about where you want to uh, uh, direct your business. In other words, which customers you might want to choose. So, in fact, we are working. I think we have two active prototypes with Google right now. So, uh, despite that uh, uh, employee concern during the Project Maven period, uh, Google's made management decision that they want to continue to support uh, Department of Defense, and we're happy to see that. As you point out, others already said we're not going to crowdsource our Business strategy decisions, uh, Microsoft and Amazon being uh, being primary there, but the, those companies that are large, global uh, providers have more flexibility. The type of companies we're most often working with, making that payroll, making sure they can raise that next round of funding, means they're pursuing any business that uh, that makes sense to grow their grow their company. And we found an increasing number that uh, that want to work with DoD. In fact, the number of the average number of companies responding to our solicitations is up forty percent year over year. Now, you could say some of that's from the segments that we work in. Uh, if you're a company in commercial space, uh, maybe in autonomous systems, you know the government's going to be a big customer. So probably those employees have sorted through that before they ever started working with those uh, companies. Much less so artificial intelligence and cyber. Those companies don't need to work with DOD. Uh, but I'd say even with those, we're finding tremendous number of companies that want to work with us. The last solicitation we did, which was artificial intelligence applied to swarming drones, we had 111 companies respond. So we're very pleased with the reception that we're getting among innovative companies to work on national security problems.
0: So that reminds me, you said that uh, software isn't uh, uh, your focus and that hardware, you know, that DOD actually does need hardware. But I just saw something that suggested that the US government has fielded uh, its next generation fighter in something like four or five years. Uh, and I'm assuming that that's a software revolution that made that possible.
5: Well, absolutely. I guess just to. Uh, maybe uh, clarify your uh, your question. Uh, for the core of DIU, uh, really what DIU started being, we're very focused on software solutions that can scale within the Defense Department. So artificial intelligence, cybersecurity are two of the five uh, technology portfolios that we work in. With the newest part of DIU, what we call National Security Innovation Capital, that today is focused on hardware because that's an, an investment vehicle, and the idea there is how can we stimulate more investment in hardware? So we see that uh, over the next 10 years, we're going to need more hardware suppliers than we have today. So two different parts of DIU. But back to your, uh, your question, yes, uh, to, to get a sixth generation uh, fighter is definitely a software revolution put into practice. So you can't prototype all those parts and test them. This is really uh, the best of computer-aided design and simulation being put to work uh, to develop that in record time and a very exciting development.
0: yeah so if you had to showcase a couple of uh, 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 prototypes that you think have really proven the worth of DIU, what would you what would you talk about?
5: Well one would certainly be uh, predictive maintenance so here's a, a technology that the commercial aircraft, uh, industry has used for years to say, you know, what are the parts that are likely to break next? And shouldn't I fix those while the plane is in a, in a repair depot versus, uh, you know, certainly flying? Uh, so this is very different than uh, when you and I would take a car in for maintenance, obviously, much lower cost, uh, you know, item we're talking about, and going through a checklist, right? 30,000 miles, these are the parts you should replace. We can have and and, um, uh, aircraft manufacturers and users do have much more detailed data on when do these parts actually fail under what type of conditions. So the idea is why not use that data and make some predictions about what would fail next and be much more thoughtful about when we're going to replace parts. And that has actually been proven uh, now that uh, you could. Say you could predict 28 to 32 percent of the parts failures, so reducing unscheduled maintenance. And of course, that's a huge deal in the commercial aircraft world, but it's also a big deal in the military world, too. That had not been used in the military world. So we went to a supplier who has been successful commercially, was not thinking about defense at all. Uh, We convinced them, if we can make this a uh, profitable experience for you. Uh, reduce your opportunity cost would you prototype that with uh, with the uh, us air force aircraft prototype that on a small fleet proved out we could save uh, dollars in time uh, because we could predict about 30 percent of the failures and uh, in fact over time that about 50 percent of what could be catastrophic failures uh, we could predict in advance so that's a very big deal when we're talking about Uh, perhaps saving some lives. So that's been very successful. We went from small fleets to the F-16, now on the F-35, and now that's been transitioned through the Air Force's rapid sustainment uh, board. And maybe more exciting from uh, our standpoint at DIU is, this is an example of what uh, Secretary Mattis asked us to do, look for technologies that can scale across the entire military, not just one branch, not just one component unit. So here we've taken that same technology started working with an additional vendor who had some experience with Detroit and auto manufacturing and started bringing predictive maintenance to ground vehicles. So we're working with the Army and the Marines there. We're also in conversations with the Navy. What about shipboard maintenance? So this may be the first DIU prototype that will extend truly to every uh, every service, every branch. So that's, that's very exciting. Interestingly enough, some of the prototypes have resulted in complete capability. So it's not just, can we bring prototype technology, but do we bring a new capability to DOD? So another quick example, uh, we worked to refine a tanker refueling tool. So for aircraft that are fueled in, in, uh, in the air, uh, to really change what was a whiteboard, uh, dry erase marker process, pencil and paper with a simple software program that was so successful that the Air Force decided to build its own software factory using agile development methods. So that's called Kesselrod now, uh, using the Star Wars name. Uh, so that is a software factory headquartered in the Boston area that's now churning out many, many uh, different applications uh, that the Air Force needs. Uh, another quick example there, we developed a counter drone Uh, technology that we called Rogue Squadron that allowed for a cyber-secure version of foreign-made drones. Uh, And now we've transitioned that to the Defense Digital Service. So not all of what we do is transitioning a specific prototype. Some of it's developing an entirely new capability that the Department of Defense picks up.
0: So this is like an add-on to a a DJI uh, uh, drone that you could say uh, it Intercepts all the data, sends it someplace else, and uh, uh, leaves you in complete control of both the drone and the data.
5: Exactly right. Exactly right.
0: Very cool. I would have thought predictive maintenance had a pretty hefty element of AI in it, or if it doesn't, it will soon.
5: It uh, definitely does. So That was in our AI portfolio, and the company that uh, uh, has brought that to the Air Force, C3.ai, has a platform uh, that they have developed. Uh, that really is uh, on the leading edge of how can we take these disparate variables and data and uh, and say more about uh, or predict uh, what can happen in the future if we have that level of understanding about our operations.
0: So you've you've been on the. Cutting edge of a couple of different defense uh, trends. The uh, the work you did that resulted in Firma was just remarkable. It was a bipartisan uh, effort. It really changed policy much more than any other piece of legislation in the last five years, probably. I uh, and by and large, it's uh, it uh, people. may complain a little, but most people think that that what it did uh, was something that needed to have been done earlier. Um, And now you're doing DIU. At the same time, the country is moving um, quite dramatically toward a break with China in a whole host of uh, supply chain uh, uh, um, industries. Um, China is not going to take this lying down. They they have their own strategy. Uh, they're going to have their own export control laws. They already do now. Um, a, and uh, um, at the same time, it's pretty clear that it's going to get harder and harder for people to straddle the Pacific and and, and provide commercial technology goods on both sides. Uh, where do you think this ends up? And how does DIU help transition to whatever new world we're going to?
5: Well, I think we're going to technology race with China. And I think uh, while a lot of the attention has been put on what I'll call defensive measures, certainly that's what Firma, the legislation that we talked about, is all about. Those are needed. I think where we need to go in the U.S. is much more investing in ourselves. So this is a very different competition than the Cold War was. But some of the things we did in the Cold War that proved successful, I think, would serve us well again. Examples being investing uh, more federal dollars into long-term R&D. Uh, you could couple that with something like uh, uh, R&D tax credits for the industries that are areas where we need to make sure we have a lead uh, between the U.S. and our allies, areas like AI or autonomous systems or biotechnology As as you know, today, R&D tax credit, uh, you get that whether you're investing in the next uh, social app or, uh, you know, something that could be critical for national defense. So I think more dollars invested, as you know, uh, the federal uh, R&D dollars as a percentage of GDP are way down from what they were in the 1960s. We've gone from Mm -hmm. about 2 percent to 0.7. So that may have worked in an area where we were. Uh, benefiting from the peace dividend after the Cold War was one but in an area of great power competition that that's probably not serving us well And then the talent we invested in engineering talent in the 1960s and 70s. I think uh, we need that again. Uh, China's way ahead of us in terms of the number of engineers that they're they're graduating. moonshots uh, what President Kennedy called for and think of all the technology that was involved in getting a man to the moon. Again, tremendous spillover effects that was not important just for getting a man to the moon, but that's where we started miniaturizing electronics as an example. So we have tremendous benefit from calling for some moonshots in multiple areas that would then benefit our uh, private sector. So those are some of the things I'd like to see us focus on as a nation with respect to the competition with China. DIU's role I think is really uh, an analog to what China has uh, put in place They call civil military fusion. So for those not familiar, the idea there is every commercial technology developed in China is available immediately by fiat uh, to China's military, the PLA. So here we don't have that system. We don't do things by fiat. Uh, We need to encourage and uh, incentivize our private sector to work with the military. So DIU's role, we've got to make that as seamless and successful as possible to counter China's civil military fusion.
0: Yeah, I, I can't help thinking that that they borrowed that whole idea from us. I mean, we uh, it was President Eisenhower who talked about the uh, the military industrial complex, uh, and uh, uh, it has been very productive. The 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 U.S. has done very well taking its civilian agencies and uh, turning them into military uh, suppliers as necessary, um, and. Uh, We've never had somebody who did that as well on the other side, but we may this time, and so we're going to have to up our game. Um, That's right. You've, you've, you've been running DIU now for a few years. You've done the, uh, uh, the report that was so influential, and then you ran Symantec for 13 years. Uh, um, how would you compare the two, especially for somebody who's thinking about a, a career uh, in technology, but not sure whether they should go to government or to, uh, to industry?
5: Yeah, so Symantec, I was on the uh, board for 13 years and ran it for the last three I was there, just those who know Symantec's history. Uh, But I would say that uh, there's a lot more uh, in common than we might think in leading something in government versus private sector. And I'd love to see more fluidity in terms of people being a transfer back and forth to take advantage of that. Maybe I feel more that way because DIU is really at the intersection of government and technology. But I think we would benefit thinking about the challenges ahead, especially with China that we were just talking about, if we were able to attract more technology leaders into government and we had more folks with that technology experience in various parts of government, Um, of course, defense, but certainly commerce, state, Um, I I think we would be better off. So I'd love to see a little more uh, folks moving back and forth.
0: All right. Well, I, uh, they can they can find you online and send you their resume. Uh, uh, Michael Brown, this was a terrific conversation. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's great to see you again and talk to you again. Uh, I want to uh, say thanks to Mark McCarthy, Pete Chedelle, John Yu, and Megan Stiefel for uh, our helping with the news roundup. Uh, and thanks also to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Designs for our new theme music. Please do send us feedback at CyberlawPodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest and they come on the show, we'll send you our highly coveted cyber law podcast mug. Uh, Michael, uh, we're glad to send you one. If you don't have one, uh, uh, I will make sure you get one. Uh, It's under $20. You can accept it uh, without any problems under government regulations. (laughs) Uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Stuart Baker. I occasionally will uh, highlight the uh, stories we're thinking about running and ask people for comments on it. And uh, uh, when you're done, rate the show on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Episode 329 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.